0: Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf vein blooms and the autumn moon is bright.
1: Welcome to Filmography Club. I'm Jason and this is another Our Favorite Movies edition of Filmography Club. As a matter of fact, it's the second part of our talk about the Universal Monster Movies. Today, I'm still talking to Alex Bean. This is the second part of our conversation. You know him as the author of several books. He's an educator, and as you're about to hear, he's an early film aficionado. He served as an underwriter on a number of silent and early sound film restorations for the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, and he's been fascinated with the Universal horror films since he was a little kid. And of course, we're talking about the Universal monster movies, and we're talking about the early ones in particular today. Alex and I spoke for a long while about these movies, and this episode is part two of two, and it picks up exactly where the last episode ended. So let's jump back into it. This is the second half of my conversation with Alex Bean about the Universal Monster movies. But we can't really talk about the universal monster films without talking about Jack Pierce a little bit. I'm not an expert on film makeup, nor do I pretend to be, but he seems to be the guy that everyone in the game looks up to. He's sort of the the proto special effects or or makeup guy. He He's responsible for the iconic looks of Frankenstein's monster. I think he did Dracula. Is that correct?
0: Uh, Lugosi did his own work on that. And that got Pierce very mad, too. So... <laughs>
1: Yeah, I imagine so. So Lugosi, I'm going to assume he came from the old school where, all right, let me back up for a second. Back in the day, in the early days of Hollywood, for the, in the early decades of Hollywood, if you were an actor in a film, you did your own makeup. And then a guy like Jack, well, I suppose we should start with Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney came along and he was just as good at creating these insane makeups as he was just on screen as an actor. Bella Lugosi, I assume, was taking cues from those guys when he would just do his own makeup.
0: And uh, also the fact that he had played the role on Broadway. So Uh, in theater, you know, you sometimes have to do your own makeup as well. right? Um, Cheney mastered that art just from the fact that he knew that's what he needed as an actor to stick out. And I think that Pierce learned a lot from him. Actually, Pierce's start came. We were talking earlier about the man who laughs. Cheney. When he did Hunchback and Phantom for Universal, he was transitioning to MGM because he felt like they did a better job of handling him and his performances than Universal did. And so Universal wanted to continue on with these grotesque themes. And so they wanted to adapt Victor Hugo's The Man Who Laughs with Conrad Veit, who had done Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is like the first horror film of all time. Uh, from Germany in 1920. And when Cheney reneged on that, he said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to come back to Universal and uh, to do it. They got Conrad Byte and that was Jack Pierce's first big moment with them. Uh, where he created this dead-set smile, which is, uh, to this day, incredibly haunting. Uh, It's hard for me, (laughs) a grown man, it's very hard for me to turn off the lights and watch the man who laughs because it's so unsettling, that just dead-set smile. It's actually the inspiration Bob Kane saw that film, and that's the inspiration for The Joker. So that shows you all of the effects that Jack Pierce had. He created that makeup.
1: Yeah. He looks exactly like Joker or rather Joker looks exactly like Conrad Veidt in that film.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You can tell that inspiration. And uh, for people who want to see that film, actually Flicker Alley, which does just does an incredible restoration work. uh, They released that on Blu-ray last year and Universal actually paid for the restoration. They cleaned that film up and it looks gorgeous as well. Must watch. But following Dracula, Uh, They knew with Frankenstein they were going to have to go in a new direction. Lugosi did not have a good working relationship with Pierce, but when Karloff got brought on Karloff was just a good-natured person. He got along with Jack Pierce very, very well, to the point to where, when they were finishing the design of the monster, the head, Pierce said, you know, I really want this to look more like post-mortem, very just person who's been revived, and you would expect them to have kind of swollen, sunken-in cheeks. and Without batting an eye, Karloff reaches into his mouth and pulls out his dental plate. And it's been said that Pierce kind of patted him on the shoulder and said, well done, my son, you know, and he went to darken those in. And with the first Frankenstein film, as good of a film as Bride is, I love the way the monster looks in the first film. It is genuinely that moment where we first see him and he turns to the camera. This looks like a person who's been brought back from the dead. And uh, it's a tribute to Pierce, who just creates one of the all-time iconic looks. Like we said at the beginning, to this day, if you ask someone to dress up like Frankenstein for Halloween, they dress like Boris Karloff. They dress like Jack Pierce's creation.
1: If you think about it, it makes absolutely no sense why this guy would have... A flat head, why his head would go to that that flat ridge. Makes no sense. And yet, I can't imagine. In fact, Frankenstein's Monster really just doesn't work without that. I believe De Niro played Frankenstein's Monster sometime in the mid-90s, and he looked a lot more authentic to the original novel. That's... Totally a creation of Jack Pierce. That's that's a Hollywood thing. It did not come from Mar- Mary Shelley at all. And when asked about it, I think he just said something about like, well, if you wanted to change the brain out, you just pull the lid up, you know, <laughs> like, like it's a can of beans or something. And then you can just close it right back down. So totally works. I don't believe that the electrodes, what people call the bolts sticking out of the neck, I don't think that was part of the, the original novel either, but it just makes sense. In fact, the novel is very nebulous about how what the process is that brings the creature to life. It's not lightning bolts and electricity and and stuff and and electrodes like a battery, you know, hooked up to his to his neck. It's just more nebulous. The paragraph where it happens, it just has to do with like serums and and then he does a thing and now it's alive. And it's it's not necessarily science. It's not necessarily magic. It's just left sort of to the reader to determine. But obviously when it comes time to film, to make a movie, you have to show it. And I think that they went in the right direction for that. And Jack Pierce just really knocked this one out of the park.
0: Oh, absolutely. Can it us- works
1: narratively and it just works on an aesthetic level too. And it's defined Halloween for children for decades and decades and decades. When you see kids dressed up as any of the, these classic monsters, it's always the universal ones. And more times than not, it's something that Jack Pierce came up with himself.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh- What's interesting now that we live in this uh, mega franchise world where we have new superhero films and new versions of superheroes and other things every few years, you always have people say, Well, I'm excited to see this person do this or this person is to tell you how iconic these films are. You had Robert De Niro that did this, I believe, in 1993. They did a more realistic interpretation and they thought, Oh, this is going to be more modern and people are going to really take to it. But what's I think so powerful about these films is it feels like the more people try to run away from the depiction of these that James Well and Todd Browning and Jack Pierce and of course the, the actors did, I think they bring them more to mind. We all look at those new films and we say, wait, 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 that's not Frankenstein. I know what Frankenstein looks like. Uh, it's, it's very different from something like, say, Batman, where somebody puts on the cowl and you go, oh, okay, well, you know, either, we, either they have it or they don't. The images from these films are so ingrained in people that have
1: watched them. It, it's hard to think of any other depiction working. And there's been so many attempted reboots and relaunches of them, and they all kind of fail. I believe the Frankenstein you were talking about, I want to say that the official title of that movie was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Not unlike a few years earlier, we had Francis Ford Coppola directing Keanu Reeves and Gary Oldman in the Dracula movie. It was called Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I think I recall now this is a hazy memory from 25 years ago. So take this with a grain of salt. But I thought that they were just trying to do it again. They're like, okay, let's relaunch all of these, but we're going to make them R-rated versions and we're going to get really serious directors to direct them. And it'll be like, we'll just adapt what's in the original novel. And I think the next one up was supposed to, the third one, I believe was supposed to have been Jekyll and Hyde perhaps. And it just didn't work. Francis Ford Coppola, Made his Dracula movie, and it's fine. Then it's diminishing returns after that. That De Niro, Frankenstein was not great. It certainly didn't set the world on fire and and rekindle a love for the, or start a demand, rather, for a new rebooted version of this. It's just not working. All of this is to say that these are the standards. These movies are the standard bearers. Whether or not they were the first vampire movie or the first adaptation of Frankenstein, that's irrelevant. These are the ones that people think of when they think of these movies and they think of these characters.
0: Frankenstein, to me, uh, very similar to Invisible Man. It's less than 70 minutes. It is the film that still to this day, out of the group, When we're talking about, I I don't think that any of these films would probably genuinely scare uh, modern audiences that much. But the original Frankenstein, the first one uh, from 31, still has some pretty unsettling scenes in it. The scenes with them trying to scare the monster with fire at the beginning are, are still very... Very gothically shot. They work, I think, in the context. I don't think they're laughable. There, there are some scenes where you kind of laugh them off, uh, especially with Lugosi, his, his drawn-out delivery, you know. I don't think you laugh at a lot of things here. I think the monster still holds up very well. And, of course, there's that iconic scene with Maria, the little girl, where he throws her into the water. You know what's interesting is a, a, this is a famous story through Universal's history, but uh, the censors at this time, as we were saying earlier... Hollywood had a overall censoring board in L.A. and New York, and then there were state censors who would cur- cut certain things. And for people who are new to these films, there's a scene in this film where the monster escapes the castle for the first time and he's going out to the countryside and comes across this little girl. And it's a touching moment where they're throwing fa- flower petals into a lake. And the monster misinterprets, he sees these flower petals floating and he thinks, well, if I throw the little girl, she'll float too. And of course she doesn't, she drowns. There were some states that actually, when he goes to grab the little girl, they cut that scene. And then it cut right away to a scene later on where you see the father carrying her into town where she's she's drowning. And when you think about it, the censor didn't want you to see him throwing the little girl. But it's much more sinister when you think of it that way, because you don't know what's happened.
1: Yeah, because then you fill in the blanks and all you see is this father carrying a messed up corpse of his little girl through the street. And oh, my God, what did he do to her? Which is... What your mind comes up with is going to be way worse than he just chucked her in the water because he thought she could float.
0: I mean, Frankenstein, the monster in this film, is also portrayed as a very powerful being. I think in other films like The Mummy and Dracula, there's this there's this subconscious element. There's this mental element to it. But uh, Frankenstein's monster is just a very brute force figure. Right. And so a few scenes in this film, particularly at the end where he has the tussle with Victor in in the in the the windmill. There you go. Uh, where you see this and again that's a very powerful scene that holds up quite well. Very suspenseful, those two going back and forth until a fire breaks out. Just the way this film is shot, it's very it's inspired by most of the German expressionistic films of ten years earlier. And you can really tell James Well just has, has the best eye in this film for having those shadows and that darkness. There's still a real sense of doom from this, this film that, that co- still comes forth after all these years.
1: And it's heartbreaking, too. It's, it's more It's more moving than it is frightening. The scene in Bride where he meets the blind man, the blind hermit, that whole sequence is just, <laughs> it, it makes me want to cry. It's so sad.
0: Do you think, and going into Bride, of course, Bride was done a few years later. I I think this is a discussion that um, I've went back and forth on. Do you think Universal was justified in making the monster speak? Because I think there's still people bounce back and forth on that, whether it was a good thing.
1: Yeah, Mickey and I talked about that. We did an entire episode on Bride of Frankenstein. For the listeners who really want to delve into that particular movie, we might gloss over it here. But to your question, I like the creature being able to to verbalize. I I don't like him being mute. I know that Boris Karloff disagreed with that. I I think he may have been wrong. That sequence with him smoking and saying, smoke, good friend. I mean, we need that. I I need to know what this creature's thinking. I mean, Karloff does a wonderful job not speaking in the earlier film, but here we needed it. And at the end, when he pulls the, self-destruct lever that's inexplicably in the lab, we belong dead. I I don't know how you could say that with your eyes.
0: Yeah, and uh, of course there is that uh, great moment where as he's pulling the lever, he doesn't say anything and there's the tear, the the solemn soul tear that that crawls down his face. Bride is a rare sequel that is... I, I love the original film. I don't want to underscore, uh, understate what a great job James Well did with that. But with Bride of Frankenstein, James Well really did not want to do that film. As you will find throughout, a repeated theme throughout cinema history is a filmmaker will make a really great film and, and then the studio will come to him, we'll do a second one. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But Universal basically kind of held a golden nugget in front of Well, and they said, look, if you'll do this, we've got this great adaptation of the stage musical Showboat, which was similar, I guess, was the 30s version of Hamilton. It was a wildly successful Broadway production back then. And when Limley Jr. presented that ideal to Well, Well was just excited as all get out because Well was a theater kid. He had become a very famous stage director in London before he came over to the U.S., but the Limley said, hey, we've got a little favor for you. <laughs> right. Can you do that? Can you do a sequel to Frankenstein? And Will decided to just go out all out with this film. There are many elements of it. Uh, obviously, there's a scientific nature to this film. There is an anti-religious nature to this film. But also I would say uh, sometimes a misstated one. I don't know if this film is as anti-religious as it is trying to blend in the notion that the things that are being attempted here, much like in Jurassic Park, right, that famous line about not attempting these things, uh, well seems to be indicating to us that at that ending, this is something that naturally, scientifically, we are curious on and we should explore those things, but it's a be careful what you ask for type of tale. And uh, it, it's, it's very emotionally complex and just deeply rich in its theming. I, I, As you said, you have your own episode on it, and it's great. I mean, it's, it's a film that deserves as much discussion on its own as most of these films deserve grouped together.
1: Dr. Pretorius is a wonderful character in Bride of Frankenstein. And like you said, the, the movie got knocked for being maybe anti-religious, but... I wouldn't call it an anti-religious film. The thing that really makes people say that is that line where he compares fairy tales to stories in the Bible. It's okay to have a character who is anti or irreligious. It doesn't mean that the film that he's in is anti or irreligious. This is a character playing God. I mean, keep in mind, this is the sequel to a film where Henry Frankenstein Flat out says, now I know what it feels like to be God after he creates life for the first time. Famously edited out, by the way, big jump cut on on TV for years. They took that line out. So they had Dr. Pretorius in the line reading when he said, your Bible stories. That was a compromise. I believe I went over this in in The Bride of Frankenstein. It was a compromise where they made him say Bible stories, but the way he delivered that line was sneering, kind of snide. It's one thing for me to say, oh, you and your Bible stories. Well, that's one thing. But then to go, yeah, you and your Bible stories, there's a totally different implication there.
0: Right. Uh, Ernest Thessinger and Whale were very good friends and and had been when Whale was a stage director in London. And he brought him over. Uh, They did a film together, uh, The Old Dark House with Karloff in 1932, which is Again, a very well-versed, uh, very British film, very British comedic film that it d- doesn't, I don't think, hold up as well, obviously, as Bride, but it's, it's a fun little film. But Ernest Thessinger in that film um, is kind of restricted just because it's a larger cast. In this film, he just let, lets loose. He has a great time. You can tell that he's enjoying getting into this role. I think, to your point, you know, James Well is really the champion of the best of the best here. He did both Frankensteins and The Invisible Man. And Will, who was a gay man, I think just felt very, all three of these films deal with isolation. They deal with the theme of the outsider. And you have uh, so interesting in Bride, Victor, who is trying to break away and go into the happy life of marriage. And here comes Ernest Thessinger, Dr. Pretorius coming. And he's luring him back in and he's talking, he's, you know, having that sinister view of Bible stories. And you can't help but feel that it's something like Whale probably had in his own life uh, as a gay man, wanting to be a part of the normal society of 1935, but at the same point, wanting to be himself too and not having the ability to do that.
1: There's definitely a queer theory take on Bride of Frankenstein. In fact, that movie is Famously gay, probably not purposefully. I suspect that this stuff was sort of subconsciously bubbling up to the surface. I mean, like you said, you've got Victor Frankenstein. Excuse me, he's Henry. Henry in the films, for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. So that's Henry it. Frankenstein. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. So here's Henry Frankenstein about to get married, and this is in the early 30s, so it's clearly to a woman. And then here comes this guy from his past, stealing him away on his wedding day, saying, let's go make life together.
0: It's such a shame that Ernest Thessinger did not have more starring roles after this. He, he was a great, he's like Uno O'Connor. I, I think, Well, what you notice in all three of these films and why I always tell people, start with these films when you start examining them and, and watching them for the first time, because they are all still immensely entertaining. They work on all levels, but well supporting cast, are some of the best in the business to this day. He has such a knack for finding those uh, actors and actresses that walk that line between the dramatic and the funny. And also, it's just all, it all has a very rich campiness to it mm-hmm. that works, particularly in The Bride.
1: Yeah, especially Una o- O'Connor. She's only in a couple of scenes in a few of these movies, and she she steals those scenes every time. She's just a, <laughs> she's she's so much fun to watch
0: she's sorely missing from today's cast of characters in Hollywood. What yeah. What we wouldn't give to have someone like that today. Um, I think putting the bride in context, I always, uh, when discussing these films... As you said, the ending to this film, where we see the monster with the tears streaming down his eyes and he destroys the, the castle. This is really kind of the end to this first wave of horror films from Universal. And it's a very tragic end on multiple levels. As I was saying, the Lindleys, uh were very eager to get this film out to make a lot of money. And once it was done and they had made their money, they moved on with well to showboat which was going to be Limley Jr. was all in on it and he sold his dad on it. To tell you how much they spent on Showboat, by the time they were two-thirds done with production, it made up three-fifths of Universal's entire budget. i oh mean God! right? got so out of hand that the Limleys didn't have the money to complete it. And back then, you know, know, film companies weren't on a stock market. They had a board of shareholders, but the shareholders were getting nervous about this and they denied them further loans. They said, you're on your own. They thought that they would just abandon it. But the Limley's were gung-ho and they went to Standard Capital in Los Angeles and got them to supply them a loan to finish the film. But there was a clause that was written in and it said that if the Limley's did not finish this film by early April, they reserved the right to buy the studio from them at the sum of $5.5 million, which was, by today's standards, very small. And even at the time, small money, when you're talking about something with the worth of Universal Studios. Yeah. The Limley signed the loan. They went back to work, but the scale of the film, it was just too much. They had hundreds of extras, and it was uh, Well, who was used to that smaller set, had just wasn't able to complete it. And sure enough, the representatives from Standard showed up uh, the day that the loan came due, and they optioned their right to buy Universal, and the Limleys were out. Showboat was eventually completed, but it had the reputation of being the film that ruined Universal. Even though it became profitable, it was seen as the film that ruined Universal. Uh, and Will never had that power over a film. Again, with the Limleys out, Standard Capital did not take the risk on him. They didn't want to pamper him like the Limleys did. And that was the end of that first wave. So, for folks who are looking at later films in the series, particularly the Wolfman series and, and uh, the sequels that that spawned, there's a completely different feel to them. And I'm not saying that they're bad films but they lack the creative depth that these early ones did when the Limleys were in control. And it's, it's, a sad, it's a sad part to universal history because you think about how much could have been made of these later films that is denied because the filmmakers behind them didn't have the free range that Well and uh, the others had in this first series.
1: Yeah, you've got guys like Whale and Browning. I mean, these are artists. These are guys that really know their craft they're fantastic uh, filmmakers in their own right they didn't need the gimmick of the here's a supernatural horror movie they didn't need that they could have had very comfortable rewarding careers doing anything other than horror films and then once that became kind of a cash cow for for universal they could offer lesser filmmakers less money frankly to crank these out because they figured uh nah, The creature is the star of the film. We don't really need some artiste telling us what's what.
0: Right. This this is this manifest and one of my favorite stories in film history. Um, Once Showboat was done and they shot that out at that time, British censors were really cracking down on horror films. Uh, Universal had one or two films that were still in production when Standard Capital took over. But after those, they completely banned horror from their lineup because they said, we don't really have access to the European market to sell these films anymore. One of those films that did complete was uh, Dracula's Daughter, which again, in a very famous story, was supposed to have an amazing scene in it where supposed to be like Bride, where Lugosi was going to return for it and that didn't happen. There were cuts made. After that film, we go through a few years where there is no universal horror and they took it off the plate. 1938 rolls around. And like I said, this is completely in Universal's rearview view mirror at this point. And uh, there was a theater owner in Los Angeles, uh, in Santa Barbara, Emile Ullman was his name. He was a very famous, funny little theater owner who was notorious for wanting to put quick things on his cinema to save him money and get the dollars pouring in. And he came up with an idea. He said, well, I tell you what would be easy. I'm going to put Dracula and Frankenstein on a double bill. And I'm just going to play it and it would be easy to, by that point, it, it was cheap, incredibly cheap to uh, screen those films. And I'm going to air it and maybe I'll get some teenagers, they'll show up for it, they'll eager and some people are nostalgic by that point. He puts these on. Every performance sells out immediately. People in the middle of the night at 1.30 in the morning in Los Angeles lining, I, I know this is hard to believe today with streaming services, People in the middle of the night lining for blocks to see these old films, Frankenstein and Dracula. In fact, the success got to be so big and he was making so much money, he called Lugosi's agent about three weeks in and he said, would he mind making an appearance? And in a moment that all of us universal horror fans would give anything to be in the audience for, uh, after the screening of Dracula had ended, Ullman came out and said, would everybody stay in their seats? And Lugosi came out from stage right. And had oh, wow. a wicked win, you know, grin, and everybody stood up and just cheered. News of that got back to Universal. And Standard Capital was hurting for money at that point. Universal Studios was sliding into bankruptcy. They said, okay, well, if it worked for them, let's send it out nationally. And to everybody's shock, the success that Ullman had repeated across the country. That was what would kick off this second wave of monster films because they said, oh, wait, people still love these films. And it's an amazing part of history because we would see prior to streaming, Disney, of course, would do this every few years. They would let a film out of the vault That all originates from bringing these monsters back to life uh, and instituting that second wave.
1: It's difficult for modern audiences to understand if you wanted to watch a movie again, you had to wait for them to put it back in theaters. Or it would come on TV again, but it would be truncated and different, and it would just be a copy of a copy, and it's just not quite the same as going and seeing it in a theater. There was certainly no streaming, and theaters were relatively small. There were fewer screens across the country, and there were no VCRs, no DVD players, no Blu-ray players, nothing like that. You couldn't just, I feel like watching Frankenstein tonight and put it on. You had to wait until it was doled out to you and then hope that you have the time during that, that time to go watch it.
0: Right, and of course, that's what led to a lot of the cuts that you were discussing earlier. As this, uh, the, co- the 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 uh, Hays code got more strictly enforced starting in 1934, and censors, uh, when these films were reissued, started to make cuts. It is a blessing that um, sitting in a vault somewhere, the original cuts of these and and soundtracks of these. Uh, existed because we're able to reconstruct them today perfectly. But the later films certainly have, I'm not saying that they're bad. There's some really good moments. Something like uh, The Wolfman is a very solid film. I've just always said I would define it as being more polished. There's a, a feeling, it's like a shiny penny versus one that's been scruffed up, you know, not to say we all like the shiny penny, but there's something about that scruffed up one. it tells more of a story. Right. And, uh, the later films just kind of lack that, uh, those multiple layers that the well films pull off very
1: well. It comes down to the director oftentimes (laughs) got the right director. Then you've got a movie that'll stand the test of time.
0: And what a shame that well was alive during that whole second wave. And, you know, studio just at that point was, uh, moving in a different direction and he was never allowed that control. But you always sit there. I think about with uh, some of these later films, oh, my God, what if we had James Well doing The Wolfman or or a sequel, another sequel to Frankenstein? Um, Just his creative prowess, uh, I think, would have added a lot to them.
1: I'm looking forward to watching those other films. I know that they're quote unquote lesser, but I mean, I've only watched the initial batch. And you know what? That's not even true, too, because if you look at the timeline of when these films are released. So I've got this collection that collects uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, The Wolfman, and then Creature from the Black Lagoon and the color version of Phantom of the Opera. Right. That's not chronologically the first films that were released. Yeah. Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy all came out in a row of Invisible Man as well and brought a Frankenstein. But then, I mean, Wolfman doesn't come out until 10 years after Frankenstein. The first wolf movie we got was Werewolf of London, 1935. I know. It's it's never included in these conversations, but it's right right there.
0: It's it's a stinker, Jason. It's awful. Is it? it? Well, you know, with that film, Jack Pierce did the makeup for that, but he wanted to do something similar to The Wolfman, and uh, Universal wouldn't let him back then. They said that uh, they wanted to see more of the facial features.
1: Yeah, they Uh, wanted to highlight the star, you know, the the actor.
0: Outside of a cool transformation scene, I cannot uh, state enough how bad Werewolf of London is. If any of of the listeners have seen uh, the very famous Twilight Zone episode, The Howling Man, uh, where the devil escapes from uh, the shepherd's uh, cage, uh, it mimics the scene where you see a man transforming into the devil through pillars. Uh, They did that. That was mimicked from this film. Werewolf of London just doesn't work because the cast Uh, is not in it like the later one would be. And Lon Chaney Jr. is certainly not as gifted as his dad, but he's got this kind of all shucks country boy routine to him that I think you do feel genuinely sad for him that he's
1: been cursed with this. Despite the fact that the beginning of the movie has not aged well at all. I watched it the other night with my wife and it was so uncomfortable, him spying on the young lady
0: Oh, man. In
1: her room. And then when he approaches her and just starts talking about what she was wearing and what's on her nightstand and dial it down, man. That's <laughs> no, <laughs> that has not I, aged well at all. And it, it's played as being eh, all shucks. It's charming.
0: Right. That is some genuinely creepy stuff. I, I That's something else that really holds up well about Wells films. The women in his films. And I think Well being a gay man felt the need. He had more of a reverence for strong women. It's not to say that the women are traditionally feminist in the 2020 mold, but uh, there is a strong nature to them. You know, May Clark in the original Frankenstein, she says, I'm gonna go up to this castle whether you like it or not. You're either coming with me or I'm going by myself. And similar to Gloria Stewart in The Invisible Man, he crafts these, for the time period, strong female characters. And I think that is something else missing in these latter films. It goes back to that, you know, boy next door is uh, going to sweep the girl off of his feet uh, type storytelling. And I think that's something else that doesn't work about. Uh, certainly. And I've always felt like in in uh, Bride, which was made right after the production code started getting enforced. Well almost has fun with that. You know, he has them read uh overly dramatic lines to kind of play it up. But he had a respect for strong female leads. Uh, it rings forth in his films. Of course, Pre-Code was a different era where they let women more fully flesh out their sexuality and, and uh, their goals. But the Wolfman outside of that, I, I think works in quite well when you have those scenes as, uh, with the smoke machine where he's going through the wooded area Uh, I do think of that as being classic kind of universal horror to it. Uh, And Claude Rains in this film making a good return. He has that great speech about a man turning into a beast, that little poem, which uh, actually, it's not from any type of folklore. Kurt Simak made that up in the screenplay, yeah. but it reads like you would think it came from European literature.
1: Sure. They, they kind of hit that hit the audience over the head with that one. I think they read that poem or they recite that fake poem about four times throughout the course of the movie. <laughs> well, the thing is, someone has to introduce the idea of werewolves to the audience, and that's how right. they do it. They say, well, everyone knows this poem and then they recite it. And they go, OK, OK. Also, this is also another highly influential film, too. Of course, Dracula set the standard for what vampires are supposed to look like in pop culture. Frankenstein did the same thing for the monster. This movie, I think introduced the idea of silver being the almost a silver bullet, but that's that's how ingrained it is into our cultural DNA that we would even use the term. It's the silver bullet. It's the thing that can kill the werewolf. This one has nothing to do with mood. I think it's just when. The nightshade blooms is what triggers the, the change.
0: Right. Um, most of the things from this particular film uh, do develop its own folklore. I, uh, traditionally, there is not a lot of literature that's out on the idea of silver being particularly damaging. <laughs> right. Right. It's it's kind of preposterous that any metal, specific type of metal, like if you hit him with gold, it wouldn't work, you know. But it, uh, there's something about, again, the ambience of this film is soaked really deep. And so you kind of forget about it as you're watching it. You sit there and go, yeah, that's completely plausible that a silver-tipped cane would do this. Actually, the first time that they filmed the scene towards the end where Claude Rains beats down the wolf that turns out to be his son, which again is a really good bookend to this Movie. I think that storytelling technique at the end, making this full circle, the dad who doesn't believe his son and then kills him at the end is great stuff. But Reigns got a little uh overenthusiastic with the beating at the end and actually gave Janie a black eye the first time they shot the oh, scene. Wow. They had a few days. Yeah. Uh, and when you think about Reigns being from the Invisible Man, actually that that model fits quite well, doesn't sure. it? Is getting a little too crazy. This film matches, I think, the where it does, in terms of storytelling, uh, match the earlier films is in that full circle technique. Th- these films, going back to that idea with Bride of Frankenstein, that idea, be careful what you wish for. I think, uh, again, you have, as you were saying with Lon Chaney Jr. at the beginning of this film, Uh, just very brutish, very overpowering, a very hulking figure who kind of has his way with everything. And all of a sudden, you're given this curse. And it reminds him of how humbling life can be. It reminds his dad, who's also very bougie in this film. And, uh, you know, the, the townspeople who think he's an idiot, that he thinks he's turning into a wolf. It works, even though it's a more polished film and doesn't have all of the depth of the earlier ones, still works as a good watch. I think spe- specifically for kids, if they're wanting to get into it, uh, the later sequences where you see the wolf man just kind of scouring around, crawling around, Ah, uh, the wooded area hold up very well.
1: I actually kind of love this movie. It's not my favorite of the universal monster movies, by any means, but something about the look of it. I think it's that I think I'm just a sucker for that fog, just the the set design. Right. Is just wonderful. And there's one, There's one scene in particular where there's a tree with an obvious light source behind it. And it's just spilling rays of light onto the rest of the set. It's just absolutely beautiful.
0: It sets the tone for the later films. There's a lot of, not just from Universal, but from other studios uh, that would use that fog element quite a bit in the early forties. And it works. It it creates a unique bill. It also makes it set apart some from the earlier films because, uh, Most of those Dracula, Frankenstein, they happen in castles. They happen in areas that have their own very good gothic atmosphere to them. Uh, But there's something to that outdoor element that also sets aside this film
1: from the others. Yeah, and it makes sense to have a werewolf story occurring Mm -hmm. in an area like that and to have the little gypsy group of people you know, just camped right outside of that town. Which, by the way, Bela Lugosi's in this movie briefly, which is it's good to see him working again. Uh, playing a character named Bella, as a matter of fact. Right. <laughs> Good on him. And,
0: and in some ways, I, I hate to demean Dracula because it's such a, a iconic role, but the performance here actually a little bit better simply because he doesn't feel the need to overact. His lines are very brief here. Uh, Lugosi in the second wave does very, very well. Uh, and there are a number of spinoff films, the sequels to many of these films that he plays other roles that he's also very good in. But his performance here as being, I guess, the original werewolf before the wolfman comes to being definitely still has a very kind of creepy element to it at the beginning. You know that somebody's really screwed up when he sees that pentagram on that woman's hand. It sets the tone for the later story.
1: By the way, all that stuff with the pentagram and the star marking on the person like this, is it's all so contrived. And yet it, it works. <laughs> it works great. You can tell they sort of reverse engineer engineered the script. It's like, we need to wind up at this place at the end. Now, how do we explain this? Let's... Right. <laughs> yeah, they just sort of wrote the wrote the thing in, in reverse, it feels like, which is fine. It works. Kurt Sinomach, who wrote the
0: screenplay for this film, was a Jewish immigrant uh, from Europe. This film comes out at the height of Hitler's involvement in World War II. And you can tell he, who was an escaped Jew, that idea of the pentagram, the star being something that marks someone to death, plays a part in this. And, and he really, uh, Ciumac, they they interviewed him a few times before he passed away. And in his interviews, he talks about that influence about monsters. What he loved about the wolf character was Lon Chaney was a handsome man, but here he had this evilness to him and you look back at some of the top-ranking generals in the Nazi party, they were aesthetically very handsome men. They were just as handsome as Greek gods, you know, movie star material. But they had this, of course, extreme evilness to them. And the Wolfman plays with that theme about pretty people being very sinister underneath and having the ability to do very monstrous things. And also to that point, the idea we discussed about these bougie town residents who make light of it much like those in Germany who said oh it will never get that bad you know there can never be a wolf man this is all uh, just outlandish things and of course there is one plenty of parallels with this year but we will keep that of course to the side but it works it's a story that I think that's another element that if you're watching this from a 2020 perspective you go oh wow I see what they were doing
1: I didn't put that together at all wow very, very neat. Yeah. We've been at it a little over an hour and a half now. What do you think? Is there anything that you wanted to hit on that we haven't yet?
0: No, I would say if you ever want to do a uh, a follow-up to this with the sequels, there are a few that are really, really good con- uh, continuations. Dracula's Daughter is actually just like Bride. It happens right after the events of Dracula. It's actually a fairly decent film, but there's some there are some sequels that are actually quite good, and uh, I think there's a lack of content out there on them, so I think it would make it interesting to be a podcast.
1: I think so, too, and we we haven't even touched on the, the Black Lagoon at all, oh, yeah. and there's three of those movies. I had no idea. I had no idea there were two other. I, I just knew about the first one. And they came out one, two, three in a row, like three years in a row, and they were done.
0: Right. And the later films are very much like environmentalist fare. They're very ahead of their time. And now that we have this stuff readily available to people through streaming, I hate the fact that so many people haven't seen these films. They hold up so well to me. I don't think that's me being biased to these because I grew up with them. I just think that they hold up so much better than... Films that were made just 30 or 40 years ago.
1: Like I said earlier, they feel like warm blankets to me. There's just something about it being there being an October chill in the air and it's nine, 10 o'clock at night. And the only light source in the room is coming from the TV. And it's (laughs) it's it's one of these movies. I just there's just something about it that I just think is just really cozy and comforting.
0: Right, and and, and uh, I think the the black and white nature definitely plays part of that. I've wondered that because I I love the original Halloween. I love the first two um, Friday the Thirteenth movies. I love the Nightmare uh, on Elm Street series. I love the first three films. The the third film in that I think is an underrated masterpiece. I think it's a it's a fun little film. What's that? The Dreamcatchers one. Dream that Warriors. Dream Warriors. Yeah,
1: oh, that's the one.
0: I adore that film. Those films I can watch them and enjoy them but i don't know if they have as much of the rewatchability that these films do they like you said just there's a warmth to them and there's a welcoming thing and it's there's it creates a world that you want to be a part of it's almost like if you could go and step back in time and just walk into any one of these settings uh, it's like this weird European village and we don't know what year it is. We don't know. It's like, there's not light in some of the rooms. We're still having candlelight, but there are phones. It's like, okay, yeah. but that atmosphere lends itself to making these films more unique. And I think have really withstood the test of time. Yeah.
1: I think, I don't know. How do you feel, man? Are we good? I
0: think we're good. I think we're good. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate
1: it. Hey, thank you so much for coming on, man. I enjoyed it. It's a blast. We'll definitely do this again.
0: Oh yeah. And, anytime and hopefully uh, next year under better circumstances. Absolutely. All right, man. But yeah, yeah. Ha- have a good weekend. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, man. Take care. You too. There we go. Just a friendly reminder to subscribe to the show uh, so that you never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating and or a review. That'd be awfully nice of you. I'd like to thank my guest today, Alex Bean. I'd also like to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and Michael Eads. Filmography Club is produced right here in Creepy Nashville, Tennessee, by the always hardworking folks at We Own This Town. This is Filmography Club. I'm Jason Kavanis. Thanks for listening.